All right, this might be the most special and appropriate Earl ever. It's not often I get to have sponsors on the show. And today I have the man, the myth, the legend, who if you know who sings the opening song to Inappropriate Earl, the great ballad, Forever Yours, you know who my guest is. He runs the greatest metal site in the business, MetalSludge.tv. This man was there in the 80s. He lived the 80s, and he keeps the 80s going through his website in various 48 businesses he has online. Please put your dirty, greasy fingers together for the great Stevie Rochelle. Dunka. Thank you, Earl. That was an amazing uh, introduction. I don't know that I am deserved of all those accolades that you just poured over me in this beautiful West Hollywood resort-esque setting we are sitting in right now, but thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you, Stevie, because I have two sponsors for this show, you and the great Stephen Piercy, and I know I can say I've nailed you both. I mean, not sexually. <laughs> I love Piercy, and I will, uh, before we go further, I'll interject right there. 1984, the Out of the Cellar Tour, I saw Rat Live in Wisconsin probably only a couple of mere months after I witnessed Motley Crue, Shout at the Devil Tour, and Van Halen 1984 Tour, and Piercy immediately became uh, my top three. And he has stayed there for 30 plus years. I love Stephen Piercy. I love Rat. Those records, uh, one right after another, just kicked my ass. I love, I love, uh, I love him. And uh, I love that sound. I love Rat. Uh, so, he was incredibly nice. Kudos to, to, to Sep. I mean, I heard some people say, hey, man, he, he can be kind of a weenie. You know, and I couldn't have, he's probably the nicest person other than Fred Corey I've had on the podcast. Or me, but. Or, oh, well, we, we haven't, haven't even completed haven't it finished yet. me. <laughs> because, you know, you run Metal Sludge. That's your baby. And I remember the first time I heard about it, I was, and I'm not name dropping here, but. Drop them, because well, I'm going to drop them too. <laughs> it's not much of a name drop, but I was, um, as many know, I am good friends with Brent Fitz, the drummer from Slash's band. Right. And I was, he was roommates of the great Eric Mensinger from Kiss, Alice Cooper. We were at his house watching yep. his dogs. And he's like, dude, you got to check out this site. It makes fun of everything you love. And I'm like, what is it? He's like, it's something called Metal Sludge. And they, they interview like Mark Ferrari and like, <laughs> you know, people like that. Right. And, you know, the third bass player from Keel. And I'm like, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> and I've been hooked ever since. Right. I mean, tw because now it's out in the open that you run it. Right. But back then it was like a big mystery. Right. And you had to keep your anonymity. Right. Or you chose to. Why? Why, why were well, you secretive? Well, here, here here's what happened. <clears throat> uh, in in the summer of 1998, um, God, I mean the the industry as we knew it. When I say we, I I, I put everybody into the basket of you know the uh, the hard rock bands, the hair bands, the Sunset Strip bands, the bands from the 80s, the Headbangers Ball bands. I mean things were desperate at that point. You know, magazines fell by the wayside. 
God forbid, there was no more issues of blast or metallics or rock hunks on the on the newsstands. I assume you were the centerfold of that. I was absolutely actually a pinup and a centerfold in a couple of those, which is kick ass. So um, all that stuff had kind of just faded away. And um, me and a, a very good friend uh, at the time, Sean Card, who had worked with us on the road and did videos with us, we just came up with this idea to put together a website. And um, I, I honestly, I came up with this idea based on a, an incident that happened with Jerry Miller, which she was the editor of Metal Edge. And that, you know, that the reason I got angry with her was basically just because she, I heard she had kind of dissed us, you know, and, um, and she was very powerful, uh, at least to metal bands because she ran metal. Ed. Right. And, and, and I will say this, you know, and I've said probably some hardcore negative things about Jerry over at some points because of, uh, what happened and whatever, but I, I have no ill will towards her. She was an amazing supporter of tough in the early days. She put a ton of us, a ton of me in the, you know, our band in the magazine and she very, was very much supportive. But the thing is, I remember <clears throat> as big as that magazine became, I remember that she obviously was at the helm of it. And when she would come to Los Angeles from New York, we'd see her at clubs and she was always great to us. And I even helped, I think, push like Wild Side and maybe Tommy Gun and some other local bands. Well, I'd keep that under wraps. Into the, into the magazine um, and tell her, hey, you got to check these guys out. They're good. And they make made it into, say, Rock on the Rise or whatever. But these guys in these bands, these grown men, you know, 25, 28 year old, they'd be following her around FM station or in the whiskey and the rainbow like, hey, Jerry. And they'd, you know so badly wanting to kiss her ass because they knew if they could get in that magazine, it could make a difference, which it did. So, and I saw how she kind of picked favorites, you know, whether it was Warren or Slaughter or Trickster or Firehouse, which also, and hey, Tough was one of her favorites. So we got a lot of adulation from her. And with that, you know, I benefited from it, but I also, in the back of my mind, I thought, oh man, the poor guys and paradise or whoever, you know, were trying to get in and couldn't get her attention. And so years went by. Now it's 1990, 1996, 97. And I remember I had reached out to her to see if she would do something on my side project called the Cheeseheads with Attitude, which nobody knew about it. It was this football project. And she kind of scoffed at me and told me it was kind of silly and stupid and there's no reason to do it because it's a rock magazine. And at one point I came back with, well, you got a fucking nine page feature in Eric Turner's juice bar. Like what the fuck does that have to do with rock and roll? Well, he's running a fucking sandwich shop in Canoga park, but you're doing a story on it. So at one point she did turn around and an assistant editor named Paul Gargano, who had worked there, went to college at Madison, uh, UW, uh, university of Wisconsin, Madison. And, um, was a huge Packer fan and he somehow overheard or found out about this project. So he did a little feature and convinced Jerry to put it in the magazine. So we ended up in the magazine, but that was like one of the first times that I'd come to her with something and she kind of bucked me off a little bit. I actually tried to get the mistakes in that magazine as well. Around the same time I had helped them, uh, produce their first record and actually I financed it. Um, 
And they were very much a rancid kind of band, you know, Mohawks and that stuff was happening. And again, she kind of dissed it. Like she thought it was silly, but at the same time, I remember she was very supportive of number nine, which was one of Tommy Thayer's projects with Dave Aragon, uh, Dave Diggity, who was on MTV Pimp My Ride. And uh, I think Kenny Queens was in number nine. Um, and they were kind of a punk vibe, you know? So again, I bolted right at her and I said, well, Hey, you're doing all this stuff on number nine. They, you know, they're, they're punk, you know, they're very much like the green day, the offsprings, the rancid put my band in there. I'm trying to push them. So I don't remember if she put the mistakes in there or not, but then I did a solo CD and I did some shows with, uh, Gilby Clark, um, Kip Winger, uh, I think Juan Crocier had a band called Blue Sunday. Liquid Sunday. Was Liquid it? Sunday. Liquid Sunday. I know. I'm very knowledgeable. You, you're, yeah, we're dealing with a rat expert on the other uh, end of the studio here. So what happened then is I, I called her and I said, hey, I'm playing with Kip Winger at the country club. And it was very stripped down. Kip was doing acoustic. My band was kind of like a John Cougar thing. And through the grapevine, I won't name any names. Oh, come on, man. Through the grapevine, Jerry said, I don't know why he's inviting me to this. It's over. They need to just stop or something like that. And it was at that point, this is like July, August of 1998. I was like, oh, fucking dig. I was just ferocious. I was so mad, you know, because I, I heard this direct diss and um, I just, uh, it popped into my head. I'm going to start a website. I'm going to call it Metal Sludge, and I'm going to do everything in my power to destroy that magazine. Like, it, it, that was exactly what I thought in my head. Um, of course, it, you know, after the fact, it wasn't just about, like, let me destroy Jerry Miller. Um, and again, all respect to her. You know, if I saw her today, I'd be more than happy to smile and shake her hand and hug, hug her if she'd let me. <laughs> but I, you know, I did take some shots at her, but you know, I think that she <clears throat> really used her power with that at, at times in the industry. And Hey, you know, I, again, I, I got my way with her. She put a, a ton of our, you know, we had a ton of press for years and it was at that moment that metal sludge was born. And so then me and Sean just kind of said like, Hey, let's do this. And what can we do to create a website? We knew nothing about websites and websites weren't even around at the time, really. This is I mean, in the dark ages this is of in the, the, early or the beginning days. ages. Yeah, exactly. So we, we started coming up with ideas and Sean said, let's do a 20 questions. And he kind of modeled that after Playboy, you know, cause Playboy has a 20 questions interview every month with Dennis O'Leary or whoever, you know, and, and then, um, I said, yeah, we could do like a top 10 list like Letterman. Cause I was a big Letterman fan. I was like, we could do the top 10 reasons. Mark Slaughter sounds like a cat in a blender or something right. like that. And all respect, Mark's a friend of mine. I saw him on the cruise. I love Mark, but you know, this is 18 years ago. That's just like some people had said, oh, he sounds like he's screaming, he's screeching. He's, you know, so we just came up with all these little quirky, silly ideas. And, um, and then Sean said, yeah, and let's have like a girl of the month month. We'll call her a sludgeette right. and a sludgeaholic, you know? Um, and that was kind of modeled off, um, 
ICP, which is a Detroit band, which Sean really liked and introduced me to. They used to have a thing called a Juggalo and a Juggalette, like that were fans of theirs. So, and then I was like, okay, great. And then I said, I came up with this moniker idea of of how we would create our identities. Um, And we took... We took a first name from one rock star and a last name from another and put them together to create that identity. And um, so I got that from Andy Setcher from Hit Parader magazine, which I'm going to name names. Please Uh, do. Way back in the day, we were signed to Atlantic Records subsidiary called Titanium. Now, Titanium was owned by four partners. Andy Setcher, who was the editor of Hit Parader, another rock magazine. A big one. Yeah. Paul O'Neill, who was a producer and had worked with Sabotage. Um, And fast forward, he's the man that invented TSO, Trans-Siberian Orchestra. He's the CEO, creator of that. Uh, Paul O'Neill was a partner. Um, A guy named Sheldon who was kind of like a silent partner, wasn't really a music-related guy on the West Coast here, and then Mitch, uh, who was involved with Hip Parader. So there was four partners, and so they signed us to Titanium Atlantic, and Andy Setcher, at one point, when we were in New York City doing an interview, or not, not doing an interview, doing press and stuff, we went out to dinner one night. And so I'm sitting with Andy, and we're at a restaurant, and Andy's a big sports fan. And I remember I asked him something about something that was in the magazine like a review or something. And, and I go, Oh, and, um, so yeah, you know, and all the writers that you have for the magazine or whatever. And he's like, what do you mean writers? I said, well, you have like a bunch of different people. He goes, no, it's all me. I do everything. I do all the interviews. I do all the reviews. All the content is me. Um, which was kind of the same thing with Jerry Miller. And I think at one point she brought in some assistants and they contributed, but, and I said, well, what do you mean by that? Like I saw an interview that was by say, Joe, Jen, Joe Johnson or something. Right. And he goes, well, what I do is he goes, see, Steve, he's like, what I'll do is I'll listen to a, a release by, you know, insert band name here while I'm watching the game on TV. And he was a big baseball fan. So he goes, what I'll do is I'll take the first baseman's first name and the pitcher's last name. Like say it was Pete Rose and Raleigh Fingers. It'd be Raleigh Rose or Pete Fingers. Right. So he goes, I would write a review of, you know, an Alice Cooper CD or something and then go, oh, I think it's going to be Raleigh Rose who wrote that. Right. That way he doesn't attach his name to it. So then Sean came up with Janie Bonneal, which is Janie Lane, John Bon Jovi, and Vince Neil all combined. Uh, I came up with Tammy Sex Slaughter, which was Tammy Down, Steve Sex Summers, and Mark Slaughter. And then we had... Um, the girl, Donna. Donna, Donna Anderson, which was Donna Dierico and Pam Anderson from Baywatch combined. You know, those two became Donna Anderson. So, and then we had like, you know, God... Blackie's enough and Bloss Dockin and just, just and then, and I think I was uh when I contributed a few things, Vinny St. Kulik. Yeah, exactly. So and then we had reached out to friends and other people um that became friends of the sites and um some people started contributing, you know, um and we started using that content as well. So all these different little things, that's how we created Metal Sludge. And one of the things that I said in the beginning, and Sean agreed, was we're going to do it anonymous. And our theory was two things. We came up with like, let's do it like the masked magician who used to do like tell all the secrets of magic, but he'd wear that mask. Or the other thing was 
the unknown comic, which you obviously remember that. The great Murray Langston. Right. The guy that came out and did a, his whole skit with a paper bag on his face, you know? And even Kiss in the early days was always in makeup they were never seen without. So the idea was to do this metal sludge site anonymously. And it was, it was a little bit more complex as time went on, as it got bigger, and I lived here. And I was not only in Los Angeles, but I also was not just in the scene, but I was in the scene 10 years previous. So that's something that I think people started narrowing it down. They're like, when we started dropping comments about um, Robbie Crane and Hot Wheels or Lancia <laughs> or the band Creature or, you know, just things that were related to the strip that only somebody that was here in that two, three year window would, would know that, you know, um, Cause there was a lot of times that people went, Oh, it's some 20 year old kids in Kansas in their mom's basement, which was not the truth. You know, um, even though Sean was living in Michigan, he had become very knowledgeable about the scene from hanging out with us. And he was a, he was a big fan. He knew a lot about the music stuff. So that's, that was how the site was created. And it was in the early days, um, of a thing called, I think they called it geo cities, which was kind of like a hosting place where you could get like a free little section and build your website, which I didn't really understand a lot of it technically for the most part, Sean did much more than I did. And then over time there was other people that kind of went and came along that said, Hey, I can help you do this, this, and this. And I remember it was, um, James Saki, Jim Bob Dwarf, who was a big fan in the Midwest and a a big fan of music, but also a big sludge fan. He he was somebody that could say like, hey, I could make your site look better. And we were like, well, what do you mean? And like, for instance, he'd say, when we have Halloween for the month of October, I could create it. So it was all orange and black with pu- pumpkins. And when people clicked on the site, little bats would fly around the top. Right. And we're like, well, how does that work? And you go, well, I'll show you an example. So then he would send us, you know, an animated GIF or, you know, a little file. And we'd look at it. We'd be like, holy fuck, is that gnarly? Like, cool. We'll have moving bats on our site for October. And then we'll have a Santa, you know, like the the little Santa character, you know, putting a Christmas star on top of the sludge or whatever. So he, he kind of came along at one point and said, I can give you guys a better look. Um, and for the record, he did not know who we were at that time, and neither did you if you had contributed. Uh, or as I go down a list of Tracy Guns, Jizzy Pearl, Scott, Ian, Ian Robinson from MTV. I mean, there was just there became tons of people um, that contributed stuff that would say like, hey, I want to write, but I don't want to be named. And we'd be like, OK, cool. And um didn't people think Ricky Rocket was running the site? People thought Ricky was involved, which Ricky contributed. At one point, he came up with, or we had kind of together with him, came up with Dr. Rocket, which was kind of like a Ma Nuge, was Ted Nugent's mom, would answer questions. And we're like, hey, let's have a column where people ask questions to Ricky Rocket, you know? Like, hey, I went out with this guy, and he's got a baby dick, and uh, I really me. like him, and he's loaded, but his cock is like the size of a fucking so- uh, snack sausage at New Year's, so <laughs> what should I do? And then we'd have Ricky answer the question. Which leads me into the uh, the penis uh, section of the site. Oh, yeah. Those were two other charts. I had come up with those as well. 
The penis chart. The penis chart and the hair chart, which was kind of like a hair club for men. Let's talk about make notes or have little people make comments about rock stars that they went out with who were wearing wigs or were going bald or something like that. Like a Kevin Dubrow, rest in peace. Right. Follically challenged, whatever. So, you know, that, that was one chart, but the penis chart became an epic piece. I mean, to this very day, 18 years later, it still gets a lot of traffic, even though we haven't updated it in literally years. I mean, at one point there was close to, 200 or 300 profiles on there with rock stars. And of course, you know, this was all based on, you know, girls commenting and sending us little tips, which we would say when we first launched, it it was like, Hey, have you slept with a rock star? Did you fuck somebody? Did you suck his dick? (laughs) Tell us what happened. Send your stuff here to Donna at metalsludge.com or whatever. And so these girls would be like, yeah, I went out with, uh, so-and-so and and man, he was so drunk. He couldn't get it up, but you know, and then his girlfriend called and he told me to be quiet. So I went in the bathroom and went through his duffel bag when he wasn't looking and (laughs) just crazy stuff. Like I remember someone from quiet riot. You said, uh, or not you, but the, don't put my name in all this. (laughs) Said, uh, there's no riot going on in this pants. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, those, and it was, the whole thing was just, I mean, we didn't know what the internet was. I mean, nobody fucking knew what the internet was at that point. I mean, this was to anybody that's under the age of 25 or even under the age of 30, who was only about 10 when this launched, there was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. There was no YouTube. There was no MySpace. There was no Instagram. There was no iTunes. There was none of that existed. There was no Spotify. No video channels, no Vimeos, no nothing. iTunes. It was nothing. it was basically we created the first social networks for this genre of fan and music. So anybody that really liked the eighties or the Sunset Strip or Hard Rock or Headbangers Ball, everybody that had lost touch with a lot of that because all that stuff had been kind of removed from magazines at this point between 94 and 96, 97, 98, it was Marilyn Manson, boy Limp- bands, boy bands, Limp Biscuit, Kid Rock, Power Man 5000, Monster Magnet. The only, the only occasional blurb you'd see would be something about if Axl Rose was on the cover of Rolling Stone and they'd be like, He's still making Chinese democracy. It's been six years or seven years, and now it's nine years. And there's another new guitarist, you know, named Buckethead, who wears a KFC bucket on his head and a raincoat and twirls nunchucks for a solo. And that was in Spin Magazine or maybe Rolling Stone or occasionally in some kind of a a print. But nothing else existed for hair bands, you know, um... I think one of the first things that started going out for a summer tour was the Rock Never Stops tour. Oh, it stopped. And that would be like Poison Warrant and Slaughter or, you know, Winger. Dawkin. Dawkin and, you know. Piercy. L.A. Guns. And and so we, uh, you know, we just, we mocked everything. You know, Rock Never Stops was... 
rock always sucks tour, you know, or something like that. And the crazy thing is, is that playing this, doing this site and building it and creating it and the fans that followed it, there was, there was a few different people that were trying, you know, trying to figure out like, not a few, but there was a lot of people trying to figure out like who who are these people, and there was a few there was a few guys in the industry that kept saying, "Oh, they hate hair bands. They hate everything about them. They they're you know they all they do is they bash people." And and it's funny because we said it before, and we still say it. Uh, I I love this industry. You know, I loved it. You know, um, I was a huge fan of everything from Slick Toxic to the Sleazebees and Nitro and and King of the Hill and Kick Tracy and all the, all the total D-listers, um, tough right in that same category, my own band. <clears throat> I loved all that stuff. And I hailed, you know, the Skid Rose and the Rats and the Motley Crues and the Vinnie Poisons and, and the Guns and Roses, you know, and all, all those bands. I loved it. Um, but for anybody that really knows me as a person that hasn't sat with me in a you know, in, in, in a tour bus or backstage or even, you know, hanging at a club, I'm, I'm always kind of busting balls. It's not just talking shit. I'm always just busting balls. I'm a ball buster. I do that with my friends. You know, I do that with my children. I make little goofy comments about them and they look at me like, okay, daddy's a little nutty sometimes. So, I mean, I, I don't really hate any of these bands, I never did, you know, and I'm not making, you know, I'm not trying to make them cry, but some of them who have, have done so. I mean, there's a couple of guys, Sebastian Bach, uh, Bobby Blotzer are two or two or two of the few, because there's literally only a few who really kind of whined about it, you know, and, and have continued to whine about it and have held this grudge like, like I've, you know, ruined their life or attacked them. Or I, I, I love Skid Row. I love those first couple records that they did. I think Sebastian was a great performer, great singer, but you can't help but mock or make fun of the guy, you know, with some of the things he's done over the years. And, you know, when, when a guy got arrested or got a DUI or got arrested for drugs or had an altercation with another band member or, you know, they came to his house and they found, you know, plastic containers of dead dogs in his kitchen. How can you not make... That was Vinnie Vincent. That was Vinnie Vincent, exactly. He was just um, saving them. Yeah. So, you know, and, and so we, we've, we've kind of, you know, taken a pot shot at everybody at one point. And, you know, the thing is, over the time, over years, which Metal Sludge went that way, you know, in the anonymous world for... 1998, 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, you know, the pressure was beginning to build more and more because the the internet was getting bigger. People were getting more, you know, educated and knowledgeable about it. And, and even me, myself, like I said, living here, um, I would go to a club and then people would go, dude, did you see the new 20 questions on Metal Sludge today? Oh, my God, that was hysterical. I read this. I read that. And I'm supposed to go, yeah, that was awesome. Anyways, what are we getting to eat again? Are we getting a pizza? Like, I'm trying to, like, enjoy the conversation, but I'm trying to steer away from it because, you know, I, I'm the guy that helped facilitate part of that interview and part of that content. And it was just getting harder to put a game face on, you know. So I was a, at that point by 2003 and 2004 was like, man, we got to 
we got to re realign this. Well, I remember being at parties at concerts and people would be whispering. I wonder if they're here. Like you guys were the fucking X Files. <laughs> ISIS. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember uh like taking uh Eric Singer and Stefan Adika and, and like two other people to a kiss concert and the whole car ride down to the show is like, who are those guys? How do they get this information? It was like <laughs> James Bond villains. <laughs> you know, it it was it really was a fun period, and I think that most people will agree. Um, you know, I mean, it was it was a really cool time, and going forward, it was just like I I said, man, we we have to quote unquote come out of the closet. You know, we were starting to get offers. We were getting, you know, we were doing some pretty big business that was, you know, pushing into six figures annually. And it's kind of hard to go cash checks paid to Bastard Boy Floyd for $4,000. You know, it's like, why would that be? <laughs> Mr. Bond Neal, uh, yeah, here's your money. You know, it's like, it was just, we were having to be a little bit more legit, you know, and it was hard to, continue to hide that. I mean, here's what's funny. I can tell you, I lived at the time in the Van Nuys Sherman Oaks area. And, um, at one point we launched a merchandise line, which we called sludge and dice. And we had t-shirts and baby dolls and panties and trucker hats and ski hats, custom jerseys. I mean, we had like all this stuff. And I remember, we had a month once in December that was like $25,000 in sludge and dice sales. And so it was becoming, you know, like my garage was like a half a warehouse of shelving full of all these different, you know, and then if you remember, we had specific styles like the bullet, bo bullet boy blue was the color or skid row red or poison neon green so we had all these different colors and then the sizes were from like small to triple x and i mean we were color you know carrying five colors at a time you know of all sizes and then, then the barbed wire shirt you know the sex sludge and rock and roll and i remember i would sometimes have 20 or 30 packages per day and so i used to go to this post office in sherman oaks all the time and i'm standing in line and at one point, I'm standing in line. I got three or four of these plastic containers full of packages. And right behind me in line is Carlos Cavazzo, who was at the point, maybe he was still in Quiet Riot, but I recognized him. And I'm like, I didn't really know Carlos ever. I'd probably met him in passing, but he's standing right behind me. And at my feet are 30 packages. And the return on all of them is, you know a stamp that says M-S-E-N-T, Metal Sludge Entertainment. But I always like made sure that all my packages were upside down. And so I remember being in line with Carlos Cavazzo behind me. And I'm, all, and I'm, I'm sitting here with like all this sludge stuff. And then another visit, one of, your, one of your buddies, I remember being in line and Bruce Kulik was ahead of me. And he was doing his audio dog CDs at one point. And he turned around. He's like, hey, Stevie, how are you? Like, what's up? I was like, oh, just mailing some tough stuff. <laughs> yeah. and, and so there was there was like multiple incidents where I, I had close. I, I was literally in line. Uh, another time I was in line with Chris Von Dahl. Now, do you know who that is? 
uh, ah, testing from a uh, uh, grunge band. No, no, no. Chris Van Dahl was the singer of Cherry Street, and he's now in in a very successful Aerosmith tribute. He's a, basically he's a Steven uh, Tyler impersonator, um, and he's doing great with it. As a matter of fact, plug, we're doing a little feature on him coming up on Sludge. So uh, I was in line another time when he was in line um, at the post office. You know, Sherman Oaks, Galleria area. This right. is kind of a hip little area. Uh, a few, you know, celebrity rock stars and models or whatever living over there. But, um, you know, and like I said, going to the clubs or people, you know, people just come up to me and go, hey, man, I, I saw this on Sludge and they mentioned, uh, you know, they mentioned you on Rata Singer. Somebody gave you a three because they said you sucked or something, you know. Right. So it was just getting harder and harder to just fly under the radar, you know. And so that that in a nutshell is kind of how Metal Sludge was created and came to be. And it's now, you know, like I said, we're pushing into the, what, 18th year. But I, uh, you guys are like the Inquirer where you aren't taken seriously, but you have some great scoops and reporting you know, like the Great White Fire, you guys had great coverage on that. Right. And, and any unfortunate, you know, like the recent passing of A.J. Perro, the drummer from Twisted right. Sister, you guys had great, not scoop, but, you know, We coverage. were actually one of the first ones on the Dimebag thing as well. And, um, you know, re rest in peace to all those people, you know, uh, fans and the stars themselves. I remember, uh, because we had not only the site, but we have the, the message board, which is a community of, at one point we had literally like between 20 and 30,000 registered members. So that community on there, which a lot of people look at as, oh, they're all negative or there's a lot of haters, but out of those thousands and thousands of people at any given time, there's hundreds maybe even 600, 800, 1,000, or 1,200 logged on at a time. And some of those people are really into Motley Crue. Some are really into Kiss. Some are really into Rat. Some really like the Choir Boys from London. Some really like, you know, uh, Ugly Kid Joe. I mean, and so what happens is whoever their, their favorite band is, when something happens in that world, they'll immediately go, hey, I just see the new Alice Cooper dates and he hired a new guitar player. It's a chick. She's really hot. Check it out. And so all that stuff kind of just is just turning all day long with information. And I remember being online and being on um, the boards. And then we got a message that said somebody said there was a shooting at the El Rosa Villa and somebody said Dimebag Daryl's been killed. And I was like, huh? And so then I went on the boards and some people started talking to it and there was a fan, uh, I think his ID is Monty 610. He's a guy from Columbus, Ohio. And I had known him as a fan and he had communicated with us through sludge. And then he said something about the show and then mentioned, you know, like there's a red roof in next door and a pizza plate. And, and I, and I played there and I kind of knew the area. And when he started making commentary on it, and they're like, yeah, it's on the local news right now, blah, blah, blah. It, I mean, we found out within literally 15 minutes of it happening. So we kind of grabbed it and started, you know, doing updates. And the same thing with the Great White Fire. People were telling friends something had happened. At this point, cell phones had already kind of come in and texting started happening. So like you said, we, we don't always get taken seriously, but we've absolutely broke scoop, scoops on some big stories. We broke... Um, we broke the story that DJ Ashper was a guitarist in Guns N' Roses. Um, and 
little things like that have happened over the years. But, you know, when you say National Enquirer, we don't report, you know, there was a Bigfoot spotted at the L.A. Guns concert. <laughs> we don't we don't announce that. But, you know, we, that was we, just Jerry Miller. Right. Exactly. We absolutely um, have broken some huge stories, you know, over the years. And that's not just for uh, from us or because of us. That's because of our fans and the fan base and the supporters of the site that feed us that stuff. Same oh. way they would feed it to TMZ, you know? Yeah, I mean, you guys are almost like a combo TMZ, uh, you know, National Enquirer and legitimate uh, news source. I mean, right. And, in, in you know, if you're a fan of even the most obscure band, like a Shark Island, there'll be a thread on Shark Island. Right. Where you, and I'm still trying to find Richard Black, you know. After you, he's my uh, must-see interview. I can't find the guy. I was never a big fan of them. I remember them. I probably saw them at the Roxy. When they were the Sharks or Shark Island? No, Shark Island. I think we might even have played a show with them. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure we did at one point. But weren't they pretty big on the Strip more when they were the Sharks? Was that before they were Shark Island? Yeah. Well, I wasn't here then because I moved here in June of 87. So I was probably just a little post- like I, I wasn't here when Poison was local or Guns N' Roses, their record hadn't come out yet, but they had just, you know, eclipsed the, okay, we're now, you know, signed to a label and about to release a record. So they weren't like playing, you know, clubs anymore at that point. Right. They were, uh, now Tracy Guns was out of the picture for them, right? At that time. Who Tracy Guns was out of the LA. I mean, well, out of because you know, a lot of people, as crazy as this sounds to you and me, don't realize that he is the guns, right? And Guns and Roses, correct? And they're correct. Like, well, where was he in the picture? Yeah, he was, he was, I think he was in an 85 or something, and right. by early 86, then he was out, and that's when he took his name and just called it LA Guns. And, and then there was two, you know, his version, and then Axel kept Guns and Roses, you know. And Slash, how true are the rumors that Slash actually tried out for Poise? It is true. I think if you read, if you read, maybe even read, and I, I don't know if it, if he talks about it in his book, but he absolutely auditioned for Poison. No, how? From what think? I've heard from a lot of sources over the years. I mean, I remember the story as he came in in like moccasin boots and like hippie esque clothing, and then Cece came in, you know, with like pink shoes on, and like, okay, this is our guy, <laughs> right? Well, you know, the thing is this, too. I mean, it's even evident in some of the earliest shots of Guns N' Roses that hit press or even in their first video. They, I mean, they were, their sound was definitely dirtier, but they had a hairband vibe. I mean, Axel was wearing purple eyeshadow, pink lipstick, and his hair was red and ratted to the ceiling. There's pictures of Slash with purple eyeshadow on, and, you know, Duff is wearing, you know, eyeliner and lipstick and bleached hair and you know rouge on his cheekbones and you know but they they clearly dirtied it up you know pretty quickly and kind of dropped some of that that yeah glam side i mean they were almost i don't uh i almost think of them as one of the first not grunge acts but they were like to me one of the first bands to like make Bands like the Vinnie Vincent Invasion look ridiculous. Like, well, you know, honestly, I thought Vinnie Vincent Invasion looked ridiculous to begin with. I mean, I just thought that it was just everything was so over the top, you know. Um, 
And for the record and on the record, Tuff opened up for the Vinnie Vincent invasion at the palace for one of their last ever shows. And, um, I mean, I thought, you know, Mark looked cool and sang great and they all looked cool, I guess, to an extent, but Vinnie wanted everything like, can your hair be 10 inches high? No, we want our hair 14 inches high. Do I want a flying V? No, I want a guitar. That's two flying V's glued together. Um, you know, I mean, it was just everything was really, really not just have a drum fill, but like Bobby Rock was doing quadruplet triplets like, you know, and, and the guitar was like, it was just like, it was like nitro ish, you know, it was just complete over the top mayhem, you know, and by the time they fell apart. And then obviously the guys went on and formed slaughter and they kind of took away some of the over top, the, some of the over the topness. They ended up with a platinum record, like out of the box, you know? I mean, I think they just kind of like took some of that edge off, you know, and Dana, Dana was obviously the guy that produced all that. But, um, Vinny's theory was more is more, <laughs> not less is more, you know? That's why I liked him and kiss. Cause as crazy as Gene and Paul are, I think they kind of reined him in. Right. And he was good for he them. He kind of added a little bit of flair. Yeah, and this was, uh, you know, I don't think Ace Freely could have played in the 80s in Kiss. No, he he wasn't as nearly of, as good of a player, you know? Yeah, I mean, they wanted uh, like a J Randy Rhodes, Jakey right. e. Lee, you know, vibe. And then, right. You know, Mark St. John, Rest in Peace, came right. right. one album. And uh, and then the great Bruce Kulick. Right. And, you know, the rest is Kistery. Kistery, exactly. Now, let's get to Tough, because here, you know, I'm fascinated by how some bands made it, some bands didn't. You guys got a lot of play on MTV. You know, I thought you were Poison-like. Well, I mean, why did Poison get huge, Tough not so huge? Well, <clears throat> for starters, I will say that it is officially the 30th anniversary of tough um tough came came to be in 1985 in phoenix with george and todd and i think they even had a couple of different drummers in and out for a show or two and their original singer was a guy named terry fox who um Within six months or nine months of them playing some shows, he left the band to pursue a professional ice skating career. So a lot of people don't know that, but some do. But yeah, he became a professional ice skater. And then um, they got, uh, and then Michael at that point was already the drummer. And then they brought in Jim Gillette, who was Jimmy Lemoore at the time. And um, Gillette was a, obviously had a, a, an insane ability to scream really high. Couldn't and he, he break a glass or so. Was that that was a little later in Nitro? Yeah, but he became, he was like the singer that could, you know, scream. And so they played with him for about a year in Phoenix, I think, and then they moved to Los Angeles in the fall of '86. And they played a, a handful of shows, like a country club, a Gazaris, a Troubadour, with Jimmy. But then Gillette wanted to leave the band because he wanted to play heavier music. He was basically kind of. At that point, he'd already started doing his vocal lessons, metal power vocal lessons, which was kind of a take on what Doug Marks had done as a guitar lesson thing, you know, in, in Hip Prater. And Jimmy took what he had learned from a, a, a vocal teacher 
an old operatic singer who would teach him vocals and then a piano go, uh, do this. Doon, 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 doon. Minor, minor, mine, minor, minor, mine, minor, minor, mine. You know, these little scales. And he took what he learned from her and packaged it with a cool rock and roll dude who was 20 years old with long blonde hair and a leather jacket, put the ads out and it started exploding, you know? And, um, aside from packaging it, Jimmy did have the look and he did have that ability. He could really sing amazing stuff, could really sing in key, could scream like so high for so long. And I will say this, sidebarring out of tough here for a second. Jim had always been, and still is to this, he's always an extremist in whatever he did. Whether it was tattoos, get a million. Hair extensions, to my waist. MMA. Uh, uh, you know, yeah, MMA fighting. You know, now he's just like, he's he's been training for a long time. His kids are uh, training. Whatever he did was extreme. So him taking vocal lessons and saying to himself, he wasn't a guy that said, hey, I want to go out and hang out on Friday night and party and rock and roll. He was singing all day, practicing. His voice became so strong. He had the ability to sing so high that that was his theory, you know, and it was then it was like, hey, I'm going to form this band called Nitro. I want the fastest guitar player, the highest screamer, which is me. Then we're going to get a drummer who can play insane, which was Bobby Rock at one point. And um, so he went on to form Nitro and they needed a singer. And I ended up finding out they were looking for this singer um, and they wanted somebody who was in the vein of a David Lee Roth, Vince Neil, or Brett Michaels, um, who had just at the time just started to break. And I was in Wisconsin playing around in my local bands. And I saw this advertisement through a friend who come back from, who had come back from LA and he had a bunch of flyers from the strip and he had like rock city news and bam and a bunch of stuff. And I was looking through it all. I remember seeing a picture, a flyer for Hans Naughty. Um, 22 ski There might've been a leather wolf flyer in there. Um, all stuff that was really popular in like 86, 87. And then there was this band tough and there was like four squares, a picture of George, a picture of Michael, a picture of Todd, and then an empty square that said singer wanted David Lee Roth, Vince Neil, etc. And I was like, holy fuck, that's me, <laughs> you know? Right. And, and I was playing in Wisconsin, but I had been playing a couple of years and already had thought about going to LA and wanted to go to LA, but was kind of waiting for my time. And when I saw that flyer, I was like, this is my gig, you know? And, um, I tried to call, I called a number and it was a, the rocking horse studios in Canoga park. And the lady said, yeah, if they're accepting auditions. You need to send a promo package with your eight by 10 and your demo tape. and." I started to put that together. I had, I had already done a couple demos. I took some photos, but I wasn't convinced it was as convincing as I could be in person. And I, I literally got that flyer from a friend on a Friday and I made the decision on that next day on Saturday, I'm going to buy a plane ticket. I'm going to fly to LA. And I lived in an apartment. I had two jobs. I moved everything out of my, and I didn't live in an apartment by myself. I, I lived with two girls, actually. It was like a threes company. I bet. But th there was no uh, Chrissy. <laughs> one, of the one, of the, one of the girls looked more like you, only larger. So she That's wasn't. my time. What's her number? She wasn't that hot. <laughs> no, she was a big, uh, she was a big chick. Uh, and she just wasn't, uh, she was kind of manly looking. Did you ever have sex with her? Never did anything. 
but there was the other girl was cuter and she was into gymnastics. And I think I might've like stole some of her underwear out of the hamper once and beat off with them or something. Swear to God. <laughs> no, you don't have to say that. It's not like that's I an am unbelievable a story. So at this point I'm 20, 21 years old. I'm living with these two girls in this college house and I was renting a room but I'm like, I'm going to LA. So I went home. I told my mom, I said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to buy a ticket. I'm going to fly to LA. I'm going to try out for this band. I'm putting all my stuff in the basement. So I put everything in my green LTD car that I had, loaded it up, took it to my mom's, you know, milk crates of tapes or whatever I had, you know, dresser. And I put it all in the basement. And on Monday, I went to Fox Valley Travel in downtown Oshkosh. And I bought a ticket, a one-way ticket from O'Hare Airport to LAX. And I recently found, I recently found a folder in my file cabinet with the receipt. My ticket was $109. Oh. And I flew here that Thursday. So from the time I saw the flyer until the time I landed at LAX was six days. And so once I got to LA, I was staying with a girl I knew who was a friend from Milwaukee. And then I called that Rocking Horse Studios the next day. And I said, Hey, I'm in Los Angeles. I want to meet the guys in tough. Can you tell them I'm interested to talk to them? My name is Steve. Here's my phone number, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward three, three days later or something, they called me and then they said, we want to meet you. And then we met, we hung out, they played me their tape. I played them there, played them mine. They played me theirs. And, uh, like a week later we rehearsed. We couldn't rehearse right away. The drummer had to leave out of town for a couple of days or something. We rehearsed and then, uh, it was like the first week of July. They told me I'm the singer. Like what songs did you audition for? I mean, like forever yours. Great. Probably the off their original demo, you know, candy coated dress for dance and like these really glammy. It was pretty much like, look what the cat dragged in side three. I right. mean, it was very, <laughs> very, very poppy glammy. And then, um, once I got in the band, um, Michael, the drummer was the leader. He was kind of the business guy. He booked us a show and we were on uh, second slot opening for Warrant at the Roxy in August. Like That's a big gig. Late August. Yeah, because Warrant was already pretty big news at that point. But if you remember, the way they did it then is there was five bands. There was a first slot, a second slot, a support slot. Headliner was Warrant was fourth. And then the cleanup band was last. And that's not a good spot. No, because everyone's backstage or leaving or in the parking lot or, you know. Fucking at some. Behind a dumpster. <laughs> in the alley behind yeah. Dantana's. So we were the second slot band and Paradise was the third. And when I say Paradise, I mean pair of dice as in two dice. Right. And for the LA locals, you'll know that there was the Paradise as in dice and Paradise as in like Paradise Island. So. That was our first show in August. In September, we went to Phoenix and we played a show with a band called Mistreated, who remnants of that band became Asphalt Ballet. They were based out of San Diego. Then we came back to LA and we played first slot at the Troubadour, opening up for Mon Cherie and Clockwork Orange. And we were the first slot band and we had the most people, the biggest crowd, sold the most tickets and that was like early October. And then we got an offer as I drop names. We got an offer from a girl named Janie 
who had a company called Razzmatazz. She was like a high school girl that was a big fan and lo working locally. She had this little promo company called Razzmatazz Promotions, and she booked us to headline the whiskey on November 6th of 1987 and paid us 500 bucks. And so that was our first headlining show. It was our fourth show together. And that Janie, who I dated for a short time. Um, What's a short time for you? You know, fooled around, hung out a couple times, went to lunch, blah, 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 a few months. Um, still remain friends all these years later. And fast forward to today, she is actually Mrs. Van Halen right now. Really? That's Eddie Van Halen's wife. Well, we're going to get to you. Janie Lizuski. We're gonna to get to your womanizing a little later. Okay. It might be this might be a two parter, to be honest with you. I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface with. I'm all good. Yeah, yeah, no, but you know, we, we we're gonna stick on tough for now because tough? Okay. I mean, '87 is. Would you say this was starting to enter the home stretch of the peak of the scene? Well, yeah, I mean, at this point, think about it. Los Angeles had just spit out poison who got a small record deal, put out Cry Tough, was on Headbangers Ball, was on tour opening up for Great White or Quiet Riot. Um, but nothing had really happened with them. I saw them in 86 in Wisconsin open for Quiet Riot. Um, and I actually hung out with them afterwards and I had met Ricky Rocket and he told us, we're going to go home and film a new video for a new single, which I don't think they knew what the single was going to be at that time. This was like September, October of 86. And then they went home and filmed, obviously, Talk Dirty to Me, which was released like in December or January. And then it exploded. You know, so by January of 87, Poison was suddenly, you know, on the charts and within six months sold three million records. And at that on the on the heels of that, as that was happening, I think everybody was getting a record deal. Faster Pussycat got signed, LA Guns got signed, Guns N' Roses got signed, you know, and then there was just everybody was lining up. I mean, Warrant was next out of on the line. Demals had got a record deal. Britney Fox. Well, Britney Fox was in Philly, but you know, I'm just keeping to the Sunset Strip here. And then, you know, the salt salty dog got signed to Geffen. Um Pretty Boy Floyd got soon signed after that, you know, in 88, 89. And so, yeah, then there was just like a lot of bands got record deals. And I think a lot of it was based off the fact that Poison were a club band that everybody said, oh, they're not good enough. They're not good musicians, you know, and they did a record in like 10 days for very low budget and it went on to sell millions. And, you know, outside of Motley and probably Guns N' Roses, I mean, they're the biggest, the biggest seller and the, the one with the biggest main, uh, long, long, long standing, uh, you know, stamina here 30 years later, they're still very relevant with that brand, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I think people forget CC DeVille was like a classically trained guitarist. He's a much better player than a lot of people ever gave him credit for, you know? I mean, CC was, uh, very, and I'm not a fan of Led Zeppelin, but I remember hanging out with him a few times and he was with like James Kotak who was playing drums and some other musicians, Jimmy Bain on bass. And they were like, just CC was talking, you know, B side rare release. You know, he knew all the riffs, all the parts was a huge Jimmy page fan. He, he definitely knew his, his, his craft, you know, well, didn't he do, I mean, didn't he do the solo for Cherry Pie? 
Uh, he may one have, of Warren's hits. I I know I know CC did play guitar and some Warren stuff. So how bad could he have been if other bands, competitors especially, are saying, "Hey, can you right?" You know, help no, us he out. absolutely was a great player, and he is a great player. You know, do you think a lot of guys from that era don't get credit? For their abilities just because of how they looked like a warren d martini you know you look at some early rat photos they look like fucking gay pirates right yeah you know i think that winger etc you know the whole band wingers all very i mean rod morgenstein if i believe is the drummer's name he he's like he's an insane level drummer the you fusion know fusion drummer yeah you know and uh kip um he was playing obviously bass for Alice Cooper and then, um, in the Kane Roberts era. Yeah. And so all those guys are very accomplished, you know, and they're very educated and know their craft. I mean, even a guy like, you know, guys like Kerry Kelly or Robbie Crane who have been playing in, you know, in and out of a lot of bands in the last few years, those guys are not just guys that know a bunch of great cover songs. Those guys you can sit down with and they can help rewire their own guitars or amps and know, you know, different tunings and a lot of different, you know, like Kerry Kelly, for instance, I remember he came to play a couple shows for us once. Uh, we needed him to fill in and he showed up at rehearsal and he asked me what songs I gave him a couple CDs. He learned them and he came in and at one point he flipped open his guitar case and he had a legal pad there with music, sheet, sheet music in it and a bunch of notes. And, and I was, I had never seen that, you know, in a rock and roll setting where we're in rehearsal and I'm like, uh, yeah, rock a pit bridge. And he'd be like, cool. And he, you know, flipped the page and he put on his little readers and he sat there with his guitar and he was literally, he had charted our music, you know? Right. And I was like, fuck, you know? I mean, and he, he, he played it great, you know, and added his own flavor, but he, he's, he's very accomplished. You know, you don't, you don't get in Slash's band. I mean, he played guitar with Slash. You're not going to get in Slash's band or in Alice Cooper and Rat and then be on call for guys that might need you from Night Ranger and Wharton Skid Row if you just have cool hair and a fucking, you know, badass jacket. <laughs> you know, that doesn't happen anymore, you know? Damn it. Well, I mean, like you mentioned Night Ranger. I always thought the guy like Brad Gillis never gets credit. He's not really uh, our genre of music, but... Yeah, that guy's a great player. No, absolutely. I mean, he played obviously with Ozzy, and then um, you know, Night Ranger is a great band, you know, and he he's a ripper. Even you know? uh, the Jeff Watson, his uh, cohort in Night Ranger, right? And Joel, uh, I'm going to butcher his last name. Holkstra. He's isn't he in White Snake now? He's played in some projects. He's kind of like a, you know, like uh, what Kerry has done, and and um, Doug Aldrich, and some of those guys. They've they've you know, they were around and they might have been involved in some projects. Doug was in Lion, which had a re release or two, but probably didn't do anything on the radar. But, you know, they, they, they kept, you know, kept working and stayed in, 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 you know, in this industry to a point where now they, you know, their talents are being utilized elsewhere. You know, I mean, that was, that was a little press recently when D Schneider made a comment about Doug, like what, what White Snake record did Doug Aldrich contribute to? And I mean, Doug wasn't in White Snake in in the prime era, you know, between the late seventies through the eighties and early nineties. But he's been in the band, in and out of the band, and played with them in recent years. And obviously, is a world class rock guitarist, just like Brian Tishy's a world class rock drummer. But he hadn't played on 
a lot of those great classical records, but he toured with Billy Idol. Billy Idol. Um, he's doing, you know, a ton of stuff. Foreigner, you know, and he's a very in demand guy because of how good of a player he is. And and not just player, but person and professional and holding all those qualities, you know? No, no. I, by the way, I, I love the new Billy Idol record just for the, uh, just for the record. Billy Idol was also on the Tough Flyer, which I have this, I think my mom has it, wanted lead singer in the vein of David Lee Roth, Vince Neil, Billy Idol, Robin Zander, Brett Michaels. That's what it said. Right. And uh, th- I mean, those are all bands that I loved. I love Cheap Trick. I saw Billy Idol in 1984. Um, I remember those first couple records. Um, great, great stuff. Oh, I mean, him and Steve Stevens, it's just such a great... Steve's uh, a good guy. Steve looks like a Jersey Shore housewife. But. Steve's a good guy, and his wife's a good girl. Love them both, Steve well, and Josie. The, Steve's another guy who I think... Uh, I played someone, his, he did an album called Flamenco Agogo. Mm-hmm. Just solo album, and the person I said, just listen to this. They're like, wow, this is amazing. Who is this? And I pull up a picture of Steve, and it's right. like, oh... Like the look and image is like, oh no, he like, he's 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 a world class guitarist. Obviously, he's done some great things. I mean, he played with Michael Jackson. You know, I mean that's that in its own right is a pretty huge. Dirty Diana, the solo, yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people don't know this. He did the instrumental and the, the beautiful uh, instrumental on the Top Gun soundtrack. Okay, I didn't know that with uh, Harold Faltermeyer. They did a, this was I think the pinnacle of the eighties for me. That video they did. You now Top Gun was eighty six, so right. it probably came out 86 87 but they probably spent millions on this video of him in an airport hangar with all these jets and it was just like excess <laughs> and he's got this all shiny silver one piece jumpsuit on right. like this is rock and roll very tough not quite as good as your picture in the towel the centerfold yeah the towel picture is still you know it's still haunting me many years later uh, all walks of life and people that i know occasionally will be like people that don't didn't know me then and know me now will be like, dude, what is this? <laughs> and that absolutely is uh but hey, you know, I don't I'm not ashamed of it. It is what it is. I was 21. I was in Teen Magazine, Teen Machine, Rock Hunks, Frontiers. <laughs> I was in all kinds of rock, you know, teeny bopper magazines with those crazy photos but you know it is what it is no no i mean listen if i didn't know how how many women you've been with i think this guy is gayer than tom hanks at the end of philadelphia (laughs) but that was the uh, i want to steer it back to tough like you know was it like when you guys see poison kind of just blowing up was there a sense and tough of what do we have to do to i mean what are they doing we're not doing well you know the thing is See, it's seeing seeing a band and liking them or being influenced by it's like it's like people when you say the comparison like everybody assumed okay now that Poison has sold three million records and they're in all the magazines okay hey there's this guy here's tough I mean me me and Brett are a couple years apart he's a Midwest you know guy I'm a Midwest guy he, I have German roots I think he's part German we both had blonde hair blue eyes you know. Uh, you know, and, and we both grew up loving Van Halen and Vince Neil. So, I mean, I wanted long hair and I wanted to be in a rock band and wear 
sexy pants and grab my crotch and have girls scream, you know, and throw beer and water on people. I mean, it was, I was just doing a party rock and roll vibe. That's what I was doing. Um, based on what I had learned from David Lee Roth or Vince Neil. And I think he did the same. And it's funny when Poison actually became big and now was becoming a national band, because at this point there was no internets, there was none of that stuff. When Poison finally came out, we're on Headbangers Ball. There was some friends of mine from high school that knew I had started playing in a band and knew I was kind of, you know, in a singer. And suddenly there was like some rumors going around town like, hey, Steve's band is on Headbangers Ball. So some local people in Wisconsin who had no idea who Poison was had seen this Cry Tough video on, on Headbangers Ball, and they said, hey, Steve's on Headbangers Ball. Like, these were people that hadn't seen me in a few years and knew I was in a band, but there was, me and Brett obviously looked very similar. I wasn't yeah. trying to look like Brett. I mean, people had like one point going, oh, Stevie, you know, the guys in tough are getting plastic surgery so they can look like poison. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We're living in a, you know, a two bedroom apartment in Van Nuys with, you know, eight guys, roadies, whatever, and barely eating top ramen. We weren't getting plastic surgery to look like poison. We just, you know, that was just the flavor. I mean, that, you know, loudness looked like, you know, if you had, had you had put a little covering over their Asian faces, you would have thought, Hey, there's shout at the devil. You know, I mean, they had, everybody was kind of following Motley was kind of being compared to kiss and wasp was being compared to Motley. And you know, that whole black leather saw blades, chain spikes, fast forward a few more years. Now suddenly poison and, you know, it's becoming a little poppy. And then, you know, even at that point, Motley was wearing like Vince is wearing the pink stuff and, you know, Nikki Six is wearing the polka dotted or the stripe thing, which, you know, Bobby Dahl at one point had something similar. Everybody was kind of borrowing from each other and favoring each other in the way of, you know, that's that standard rock look. And, you know, we we just did what we liked, you know, and I think we were always a little harder than Poison. I think our guitar guitar sound or our general sound is a little bit more maybe heavy metal. You know, I mean, so many seasons forever yours. Those are poppy songs, but good guys were black, ain't worth a dime. Uh, those were more kind of a little Judas Priestish with the chorus, you know, and so that that wasn't the way we were, you know, setting out to be one or the other. I think we were still trying to find ourselves. We weren't totally pop. We weren't totally metal. We were kind of mixed. You Do know, you think that was maybe why you guys never got to that poison level like because you weren't like because a lot of bands i think were kind of caught in the middle of do we go glam or do we well, stay to our roots you know is a great example of that is black and blue black and blue was a great band one of, right there is that they're in my top five all time i love jamie st james i love black and blue those first few records were amazing. I mean, all those records, I think they did like four on Geffen, but they were a much hard, they had more of a hard rock, heavy metal sound, you know, um, auto blast, hold on to 18. That, that, that was metal, but it wasn't, it wasn't thrash. It wasn't as heavy as Metallica, but because of how much image was becoming so important, what Vince Neil and Motley Crue looked like, what Piercy and Robin Crosby looked like, what poison was becoming that suddenly Black and blue is like, and even Keel is being kind of pushed to go put on a sparkly top, put right. on some, you know, Jamie St. James had this bodysuit. Oh, I love that bodysuit. I love Jamie St. James. I love that band, but that was the gayest fucking suit ever. <laughs> 
Well, and some of the spandex that people had was just so, you know, and 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 then and at one point the drummer wore a diaper. Yeah, I was gonna say at the uh, in the uh, hold on to eighteen video, I, he's wearing like these dolphin shorts. It's like, dude, did you not want to dress up for this video? I, I mean, and, and again, I loved Black and Blue. I thought they were amazing. But at one point, you know, the drummer's in a diaper, and and poor Jeff Whoop Warner was balding way before anybody. Yeah. And and it was like, at that point, it was so not cool to be looking like Phil Collins. And I mean, Phil, or Phil Collins, the singer of Genesis. And it was like, you know, poor, poor... Um, I think Patrick had like he was trying to do the piercy where the one side of his head was sh not shaved but like very short and it, like they looked like an amber alert line. Yeah, I mean it's you, black and blue was they were the the image was lost with them. They weren't metal, they weren't heavy metal, they weren't pop. They they were just kind of in the middle and you know Gene produced didn't Gene produce most of their records? I think Gene produced uh, like their last couple of them. semi big one and right. that's when they went downhill. <laughs> Thanks, and totally Gene. ripped Thanks, off. Thanks, Gene. You ruined Black and Blue. Uh, Domino, the Kiss song Domino, is a complete ripoff of one of the Black and Blue songs. I mean, yeah. it's like note for note. Little did Black and Blue know that they were just Gene was just getting ready to farm out their guitar player and steal them. But yeah, I mean, so that that's where Image became. You know, it, it played where again, Black and Blue had some great songs. They had some great, great riffs, great hooks. Dude, they had they were signed to Geffen Records. I mean, they had a a label that was just exploding, you know. But at the end of the day, you, you have to realize as a musician that not everybody can win. Right. Everybody can't become Fred Durst. Everybody right. can't become Axl Rose. Everybody can't become Kid Rock. So you have to find your place, you know. Uh, everybody can't become Brett Michaels. I mean, think about what Brett's done. Aside from Poison, he's become you know level a list you know i mean he's 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 won donald trump's celebrity apprentice tv show and you know he's just built a brand uh you know that's way above and beyond what anyone could have imagined you now know? do you think the other three guys in poison i mean obviously they benefit to a degree from that because when Poison goes out, they're bigger crowds. and Right. But do you think they're like, let's just make some good music? Yeah, I, I would think that they probably are a little a little stressed out and probably could be bummed out that Brett's able to, to do whatever he wants without them and still draw crowds and, and have these huge, you know, endorsements and company-related projects, you know, Rock My RV or whatever these TV shows that he, he, he keeps doing. Rock of Love. Rock of Love was was the catalyst. That was like something that really, really catapulted him. And I'll bet you, you know what? In the beginning, he probably didn't get very much money for that. It was kind of scoffed at and made fun of. I mean, I think we kind of goofed on it on Metal Sludge. But that little TV show turned into, you know, a big deal. I mean, at one point, it was spoofed on Saturday Night Live, you know? And, you know, it's become... You know, that that helped him push himself to a level that no one probably had imagined, you know. But let me ask you this, because you're you're in the scene. What whores went on season two that didn't see season one? Like who, who would go? I don't think this guy's looking for love. Yeah, I mean, because there's like four seasons. Yeah, well, it's it's like at this point, And again, it was relatively 
I don't want to say it was early in the reality TV show thing because Flavor of Love had already or Flavor yeah Flavor of Love with Flavor Flav had already been on. Boy, and um, you know, I mean, other celebrity or, or not celebrity, ever other reality shows have already taken place. So people have got to realize that uh, this is scripted. It is a show. It is. Oh really? You know, but but I mean, at at one point there was probably some girls that didn't know and really thought like, you know, this this could be something in a big for me. But again, some of those girls were twenty two years old. They were twenty three. Oh. They were they were stripping, you know, at Bob's Cabaret or in Denver or something, and and maybe some of them were a little smarter and thought, okay, this is my chance to get to Hollywood or to be on TV and make a little name for myself for six months or a year, which some of them did. And like a porn star, they could then go feature and say, you know, from Rock of Juliet Love. from Rock of Love season two at, you know, Bottle Tops this Friday, you know, $10 at the door. And now, you know, she gets to go take her top off and jump around and maybe make a couple thousand dollars for the night. I've done comedy at Bottle Tops. Great club. <laughs> but I mean, so, no, but that show was so big at one point, I think that Daisy Girl and... Uh, Daisy of Love. Megan, uh, she was she got her own show, uh, which the one of the contestants ended up being a serial killer or something, like in real life. <laughs> right. So, I mean, you know a show's big when these girls are getting their own shows. Yeah, I mean, Rock of Love, I, de I definitely think hit some insane numbers. Numbers. You know, they, they did insane numbers that really had not been seen probably by VH1's you yeah, know, yeah. headquarters. I mean, they definitely really hit the, hit, hit the nail on the head with that one. I know that, uh, I think before that, their only other really kind of hit show was uh, Dr. Drew's show, which, you know, his patients were dying at a clip of like Malaysian <laughs> Airlines disappearing. <laughs> you no, know, I mean, you know, it's like right. Jeff Conway. And, right. Uh, you know, uh, the Mike Starr, I think. Uh, right, from Alice in Chains. And a couple others. Yeah, I don't think Dr. Drew was the best doctor. Mm -hmm. Where did he get his uh, degree? From the place of the professor? From I Gilligan. mean, he's a guy that, you know, I, I mean, I never heard his name before five years ago, but it seemed like whether it was NBC or CNN or, I mean, Dr. Drew's name has been everywhere the last five years. God I mean, bless him. Yeah. He's like the Brett Michaels of doctors. I mean, he's just everywhere. You can't not see the guy, you know? So he's done something right to get, you know, to build a profile where people want him for FaceTime to interview him. And I'm sure he's obviously very intelligent and has, you know, a career of medical behind him that helps make him legitimate for that, you know? Well, I think he's about as legitimate as the professor from Gilligan's Island, but I mean, he died, right? Like a year yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, but let's. I'm. You know, as you know, Stevie, that, that there's no questions that are pre-planned with me, right? I ask this question of every rock and roller I've had, right? Joey Allen, Piercy, Tony Katane, Bobby Brown. Right. We're going to have to get to the women you've been with in another episode. We could do that. Because that that's that's a whole... That'll take another hour. I have some stories. The 80s were amazing. No, but that... And it's... When did you guys know... Uh-oh. The era's coming to an end. Um, Because I think Nirvana, Pearl Jam... Uh, all those bands almost get too much credit. Yeah, you know, it it wasn't. I mean, I I say 
you know, it's funny, like even in my song, American Hairband, the opening line I say is Kurt Cobain is gone, but I'm back wearing leather pants and a backwards hat, you know, um, did, did they help, you know, make us disappear? Yeah, they did just by the fact that they became the flavor of the week. Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, all those bands were just as image oriented as, as our bands were that their image was don't shave, don't brush your hair, uh, have dreadlocks. Uh, I mean, it became so predictable by the, you know, mid nineties that almost every band that came out, they were starting to run out of names as well. And that's what happened with the eighties bands. At one point there was like dangerous toys and danger, danger, you know, there was guns and roses and LA guns, you know, and there was faster pussycat and, you know, uh, there was so many Nashville pussy. Yeah. Nashville pussy. I mean, there became like there was uh, there, there's enough singers with blonde hair and a headband. You know, we already had a, a Brett Michaels and a Vince Neil and a Ted Poley and, and a Sebastian Bach and a, and a Janie Lane. And, and now we got a Stevie Rochelle. And, you know, I mean, at one point there was like there wasn't anywhere to go with it anymore. You know, bands were running out of stuff like uh the guys in Danger Danger were goofed by um, the singer from Train did a, a podcast with them and talked about asking Steve West. Okay, so your band's called Danger Danger, right? Yeah, yeah, we're called Danger. And your first single is called Naughty Naughty. Right, yeah, okay. Your next single is called Bang Bang. Like, what the fuck? Can you guys come up with? Can you drop one of the words? Can you change up the words? Like, naughty, naughty, bang, bang, danger, danger. And that's kind of what happened with the 80s is that tough was absolutely like a poison or like a danger, danger or like, you know, slaughter, warrant, white, you know, the white thing, white snake, white lion, white widow. White you know, Tiger with Mark St. John. White Tiger, you know, um, the W bands, as D. Schneider once called them, Warrant, White Snake, White Lion. I mean, there was so much of, you know, everything kind of became themed, you know, Motley Crew, you know, early right. 80s, Quiet Riot, Twisted Sister, you know, and then, then you had the thrash bands, Metallica, Megadeth, Anvil. Slayer, Motorhead, Motorhead. I mean, they were all, everything has a similar look, style, sound, and and the same. That that's what happened with ours. I mean, I remember when I first looked at Motley Crue, and I wasn't even a big Kiss fan, but I knew of Kiss enough that I looked at Shout at the Devil, and I looked at Mick Mars, and I was like, he's the Gene Simmons one, right? Even though Mick played guitar and Gene played bass, but Mick looked mean and evil and creepy, and then like. Uh, Paul Stanley, like Tommy Lee, looked a little bit more like Paul Stanley because he was a little, you know, with a cur little bit wavier hair. And then Vince Neil, because his hair was kind of light and white, and you know, it was like he's the Ace Freely one. You know, like everybody had kind of borrowed from somebody else, and that had there was been so much borrowing that the time Tough got signed, and I came out with my blonde hair and a purple headband on, and me and Brett had looked similar and. People said Warrant was a Poison ripoff, and people said Poison was a Van Halen ripoff or Motley ripoff, and Motley was a Van Halen ripoff. And in truth, Van Halen was really, you know, they ripped off, Dave ripped off Jim Dandy, you know. I mean, there's, it just got to the point where there's enough dangers 
There's enough dangerouses. There's enough poisons and toughs and pretty boys and faster cats and Danny dangerously from the zeros yeah, and, and guns and roses and flowers and soil pots that we need a change. And so then you had the grunge stuff and then it was like you had mud vein and then you had puddle of mud, you know, and then you had soil and you had disturbed and, you know, monster magnet and monster this. And, you know, I mean, everything became, again, the same thing. There was like, you could go see those, those new metal bands and there'd be one guy with a bald head and there'd be one guy with dreadlocks. And then there'd be one guy with the goatee that he, you know, silly to have hair extensions, but at one point, these guys were putting extensions in their beards right. and little beads and little fake dreadlocks. And it's like, that's, that's no, that's, you know, that's just as silly as, you know, bleach blonde hair extensions to your waist. Like you're really putting little clips in your beard and little colored braids. And, you know, again, it was just their image became just as important as, as ours was, but ours just had been overrun. It just been over you know, just run through the milf so many times that, you know, album covers and song titles were just like abused and, you know, everything was a girl and a party and a fast car and a nightlight and neon lights and ballads, you know, the power ballads. Yeah. The power ballads. And I'm missing you. I love you. I need you back. Come back. Love again. You know, once, once ain't enough, like all that stuff just became and then for the grunge bands, it was like, mm, mm, I think you're this, I think you're that, you know, and the marbles in the mouth. And it was just the, the Alice in Chains sound, the, the Nirvana sound, it was just dreary and down and slow. And, but it was also new and it was different. And obviously a lot of people gravitated towards it. But yeah. weren't a lot of the grunge bands actually grew up listening to the glam metal bands like Nirvana. The guys, the guys in Alice in Chains played the Coconut Teaser at one point and they were reviewed and there's pictures online of Lane Staley and Jerry Cantrell and they look like CC DeVille. I mean, they're absolutely over the top bleach blonde glam rockers. Um, disturbed from Chicago. All those guys were long haired rocker dudes that played the Thirsty Whale and opened up rock shows at the Gateway Theater and the Vic when they were in local bands with long hair and hockey stick, hockey stick neck guitars. But they never got signed. They didn't get their deal like Enough's Enough did. And a few years later, some haircuts, tuned down, dropped the guitar, put on some dirty roadie shorts, and suddenly they were down with the sickness. I bet. And sold millions. You know? Now, what did you think of bands like, uh, bands from your era, like, I'll say Kiss, like, putting out an album like Carnival of Souls, which was like a good Stone Temple Pilots record. But, right. And then Warrant did, I think, was it Ultraphobic? Right. You know, uh, do you think any of those bands from the glam era were successful at the conversion? Not really. I mean, uh, Wildside, friends of mine, they put out a great record on Capitol called Under the Influence, which was very much like a 
like a rat Dawkins-ish, you know, kind of record. Some great songs produced Paul by Paul Stanley uh, record. Co-wrote song. Co-wrote some songs on there or a song. Uh, produced by Andy Johns, recorded at 5150 at Eddie Van Halen's house. Brent Woods, uh, amazing guitar player. He's been playing with Sebastian Bach the last couple of years. He played with Vince Neil for years. I mean, they were a great band that had a great record, but then when they did their second record, it's 180 degrees. I mean, it was on TNT Records, which also did a Peter Chris record um, called Chris Cat, I think. And I'm not even I a Kiss have fan. It. It's half. half yep, that's it. They were on TNT Records. They put out this record called Wild Side, self-titled, and everything was just 100% Stone Temple Pilots, Alice in Chains. I love the record. It sounds amazing, but it's, it's not the same band. It right. sounds different. The guitar player was different. Uh, Bruce Draper was a guitar player who I think also played in Graveyard Train. And rest in peace, he recently passed away. Um, Brent wasn't in the band at that time, but Drew and the guys changed their direction to kind of go with the times. And I thought the record was amazing. Um, our second record, Religious Fix, is much heavier. You know, Was that a conscious decision to go, hey, we got to like... Yes and no. I mean, the thing is... A lot of what we put on our first record, which was record, started recording in 1990, was already, you know, a couple years old. You know, Good Guys Were Black and some of those songs, we demoed those in like 88. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're, by the time people really heard it, those songs were already three years old. So a lot of the stuff that we had written in 90 or 91 eventually became like Tied to the Bells, God Bless This Mess and Dogs We Trust, all heavier stuff. I could say that was absolutely influenced by a couple things. Metallica putting out Enter Sandman was a game changer for everybody. Um, and even Skid Row, when Skid Row came out, Skid Row was like black and blue with better songs and, and you know, the most amazing front man the, the genre had seen. I mean, Skid Row was a metal band, but had a little pop sensibility to the 18 in life and I Remember You. The fact that Sebastian looked the way he did at that time, was only 19 years old and could sing like a bird. You know, and it didn't hurt that Dave Snake Sabo grew up and was friends with John Bon Jovi and they had Doc McGee as their manager. You know, I mean, if John Bon Jovi and Doc McGee are not involved in that record, it's, you Who know, knows? it could have been a great record with a killer band with a awesome looking sounding singer and some ripping badass tunes that really didn't go anywhere. But you know, there's no, there's no denying that John Bon Jovi and Doc McGee involved at that time. And in for all those keeping score, we all know. At that time, Doc McGee managed the Scorpions, Bon Jovi, Motley Crue. Yeah, they I did mean, all right. And did, did he manage Cinderella too? Because they had a Bon Jovi connection. Nope, that was Larry Mazur. Okay. Yeah. Larry Mazur was their manager. So, I mean, again, you know, and, and Skid Row was the baby band. So they got to open up for a ton of Bon Jovi shows, a ton of Motley Crue shows. They got to go do that R Moscow music thing, Peace Festival in front of like 120,000 people. That was a huge, huge thing, you know. Um, and, you know, that th that can be the difference, you know, as well, as to whether or not a band goes through the roof or not. But I mean, they obviously had substance and they were playing around New York city, New Jersey for a few years with a different singer. Oh, you know? what's his name? Same songs. Matt Fallon. Matt Fallon was the original singer in Sky Skid Row. And what do you think he's doing today? If you Google Skid Row, Matt Fallon, you'll hear 
18 in Life, Youth Gone Wild, all those songs were demoed with their original singer. And it's the same songs. I mean, Skid Row, uh, those songs were written by Rachel and Snake. Um, I mean, who knows what he's doing? But, I mean, Sebastian was the missing piece to that puzzle, just as I think I was the missing piece to the Tough puzzle. Tough was a band for a couple of years and been in L.A. for nine months. But when I stepped in, it, for whatever reason, whether it was the fact that, you know, girls lit up because I was eye candy for the band or whatever, I don't know. But I, I was absolutely the missing piece that made Tough become what it became. And at the same time, I think it was, you know, it was good for the band and it was also bad. It was bad that, hey, it looks like Brett Michael's little brother, you know. But you guys which, are still touring, still got old, you know. Yeah, but you you are one of the few people from that genre who still make money in this business. I do, and it's it's not just based on touring. I I started committing myself to the band, you know, from the beginning, and over the years had put out records, all of which independently, uh, other than a couple, I facilitated everything from financing it to barcoding it and packaging it and selling it through PO boxes and eventually websites. And I still do it to this day, you know? And you manage bands like Veins of Jenna. Veins of Jenna was a, a project, you know, I, I had actually been offered a f to manage a few artists along the way. Um, there was a young pop singer named Justin Lanning, who was from LA, Beverly Hills area. Uh, who has, it was kind of like a, you know, like a Justin Timberlake, a young pop singer kid. He was like, I think he was 18 when I met him and his, his family. And I was referred by somebody um, to get involved, to help them build his image and do PR and come up with a, a blueprint. And uh, we're all good. Um, and uh, I was, uh, they wanted me to manage him at one point, but I was like, I don't really know this industry. I don't know NSYNC. I don't, I'm not backstreet. I'm, I'm not Lou Pearlman, <laughs> you know, but at one point, you know, I had kind of self-managed tough, you know, Michael was our original leader. He eventually stepped out. We had power star management, uh, Brian Kushner from New, uh, Philadelphia, New Jersey, who also managed your favorite Brittany Fox. That was our manager. I don't know if you well, knew that. You didn't know that, did you? I, I did not. Brian Kushner. So he was the one um, who was managing us during the, you know, the prime years there. Um, but once he was gone and Michael was gone, I mean, I took on the reins, you know, and over time I eventually found myself wanting to work with the band, but it had to be the right situation. And I saw them and they were young and from Sweden and I went with my gut, just like I did with when Metal Sludge popped into my head. I saw this Fiends of Jenna band and I said, I'm going to work with them. And my next call was to Gilby Clark, who was in obviously Guns N' Roses for several years. And I said, hey, I found a band. I need to demo them right now. He's like, dude, I just got home from tour with Hart, Nancy Wilson. And, I, you know, what, when? When do you want to do it? In a couple of weeks? I'm like, no, we need to do it in the next 72 hours because they leave town. This was in the summer of 2005. And, uh, you know, we made it happen. Gilby helped me with some demos. And, you know, then I started using the site Sludge and in, in other social networks to start throwing it out there. Hey, let's let's uh, let's put this band out there and see what happens. And we started to dig in. And that became a whole thing in itself and it was a good run i think i saw them open up for rat at universal rat and poison that's a big uh i got them on that tour now how does one uh get 
someone on a tour that you know in the, in the glam rock world that tour was absolutely a cold call i called a friend of a friend that i knew and i said i need to get a message to bobby doll and they're like what for i'm like tell him i want to talk to him about my band somehow being on this tour cuz at this point it was early 2007 and called somebody they called me back 10 minutes later and they said Bobby wants you to call him or he's going to call you in five minutes. And my phone rang. It was a Florida number. And he's like, Stevie Rochelle, it's Bobby Dahl. What do you want? I'm like, hey, Bobby, it's been a while. How are you? I need a favor. I need my band on your tour. And, and uh, you know, we, we went round and round uh, for uh, Rat Drop. Nice plug for the Rat Drop. Uh, we went back and forth for a few months. And, um, you know, at this point, Bam Margera was already involved from the Jackass Right. Uh, brand. And things were things were happening for Veins of Jenna. But, you know, Bobby and I had meetings. We talked. They brought it to the bands. They brought it to Live Nation. Uh, Troy Blakely from ICM. At one point, I was on three-way with him and Bobby. And I was pulling rabbits out of my ass left and right. But it was magical, and it happened. And they were on the entire Poison Rat Summer Tour 2007 and played... Think fifty-five amphitheaters across America, That's main awesome. stage. Oh yeah, no, they were great. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the singer left to get married, and then just the band kind of not—I don't want to say imploded. Yeah, but just kind of slowly, kind of evolved and changed, and it ended. So, but it was a good—it was a good, you know, four or five-year run and uh, learning experience for them and me. And um, I think we put them on the map. Kind of like a little bit of a Hanoi Rocks vibe. You know, they're kind of underground. They have some fans, but it never got to a huge, huge level. Yeah, yeah. Hanoi Rocks meets Poison meets, you know, I think the grittiness of Motorhead. Yeah. Like just that underground vibe. And, you know, they had a nice run. Thanks to your tutelage. So you want to uh, call this today? Yeah, we're going to call this today. We, there's so many... For the people out there, I mean, Stevie is like the Matt Drudge of of the metal world. I mean, I, we didn't even get into Mark Free from King Cobros. Now Marcy Free, we didn't get into uh, many feuds he's had with rockers. We, you know, you and Brett Michaels have recently buried the hatchet, from we, what I understand. We have, we have, and it was all a weird set of circumstances that he was basically a block from my house and we ended up uh having a little uh little one-on-one and it was all good but we'll talk more about that and feuds and all that other stuff in in part two in part two we didn't even get to the girl story we can do some girl talk because i've noticed and i told you this and we'll like just gen- gently wrap it up like when you go on metal sludge and what's the website for the people who are out there who well if they if they google metal sludge you, you know if you put in dot tv or dot com they all go to the same you know the same home so it's metal sludge.com dot tv um and there's all kinds of stuff there to to, to read uh 17 18 years of history roughly 500 interviews with every rock star on the planet and um, then some and then some uh we've also interviewed you know wrestlers and porn stars and various over the years let's just say porn actresses porn actresses yeah um, well i mean yeah just but 
you go on the gossip boards and you read the threads and you know there there's some great threads you know a motley crew set list from last night it's right. about 100 200 views you know uh rats current situation uh, you know quiet riot documentary you know 100 200 views and then stevie's sex stories of, about going down on some girl behind the troubadour <laughs> alley uh, gets like 7,000 views. So, uh, you know, Stevie has so many stories and has betted many uh, starlets, including a past guest on Inappropriate Earl. And if you know this show, there's not been a lot of female guests, so <laughs> it shouldn't be. Yeah, the, there will definitely be some stories to tell, and I, I, I will uncover some of it. It's, it was... The 80s, like I said, were fun. There was some, uh, you know, some tour bus stories, some backstage, some dressing rooms. Alleyways. Some alleyways next to a dumpster stories. There's some crazy stuff that went down with... With, uh, with, with your... I mean, you've lived the life that only I and many others can just dream about. You've lived your dream. <laughs> you've made a living doing what you love for 30 years coming out here. You're like the girl in the Fallen Angel video for Poison. <laughs> You came out here on the bus, bright lights, and you're still here 30 years later. Fallen Angel. That's Th funny. That's a great video. I knew the pimp in that video, uh, the big, tall uh, pimp. But that's, uh, now we're getting off into something else. Uh, where can people buy tough CDs, tough merchandise? You know what? Google it. If you go to toughcds.com or to Metal Sludge. T-U-F-F. T-U-F-F-C-D-S.com. You can go to Metal Sludge. You can Google Tough iTunes, Amazon, eBay, Napster, TuneCore, everything's available digitally. Eight records, eight tough records, two solo records. Um, Tons of DVDs. DVDs, T-shirts, half a dozen Shameless stu studio records that I've been on from uh, the band Shameless, a group out of Germany. There's a you know, probably another dozen or so tribute records I've contributed for everything from songs from Sticks to Journey, Guns N' Roses, Bon Jovi, Motley Crue. So you're like the uh, glam version of Steve Lukather. You've just played. On I've been around on some musical con uh, compilations. Yeah. And so, please, and on Twitter and Instagram, where do people find you? Um, Twitter slash Metal Sludge, Twitter slash Stevie Tough, uh, Instagram Stevie Tough. Facebook, you know, Stevie Rochelle Tough or Stevie Rochelle Metal Sludge. There's all kinds of groups. and Jesus, you've got a lot of websites. Yeah. And on uh, Uporn, where, what's your uh, password? Don't have any on those. Tough 65. YouTube. Guys. Search YouTube. There's a lot of Tough, Stevie Rochelle, Shameless. And you were briefly in uh, Decline of Western Civilization. I was right? in Decline of Western Civilization and um, uh, a, a handful of other. I appeared on Dream On on HBO as like a band extra i was on melrose place i was in wayne's world 2 in the crowd and a scene or two i've had my fair share of quote-unquote extra work acting i was also in um the stoned age wow where the guys were all in the warehouse scene with the tall beers and they're all they're going to the break up, break up the party. I'm in a bunch of scenes there too, which people occasionally will find those shots because I'm I'm pretty dominantly visual. I mean, my you blonde are. hair, red headband, bodybuilder like physique, big shoulders. I'm there. You're like the modern age Kane Roberts, Hulk Hogan with a little better hair. <laughs> yeah, just a little, brother. 
I think we'll end on that, a Hulk Hogan zinger, seeing that this is WrestleMania week. Okay. So, uh, guys, this is uh, part one of uh, Stevie Rochelle. Uh, this man is a good friend of mine. Support by Tough Records, CDs, shirts, Metal Sludge shirts. Uh, you guys know where to find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Inappropriate Earl. Leave a review. I leave all up. And uh, com- coming soon, we've got the beautiful female guitar player from Alice Cooper, Nita Strauss, coming down next week. And uh, many more uh, 80s guy, Mark Ferrari, coming in sooner than later. So uh, thank you, guys. I-, I do this for you guys. I don't make a dollar on this show other than the joy in my heart from providing you guests like Stevie Rochelle. Can I please say thanks to Earl for letting me come in. This is a part one. There will be a part two because we have a whole bunch of news on tough history for the 30 year anniversary coming up. And we have to indulge into the debauchery that was the Sunset Strip from Gazaris to the Troubadour and the Country Club and back. Because you were there. I was there. You were in it. I mean, I was there, but you were in it. And, uh, you know, there's uh, I only wish you were in L.A. a little sooner than you were so we could get into the Starwood and Eddie Nash stories. But, uh, you know, Eddie Nash, great uh, owner of the Starwood where Van Halen got their star quiet riot, uh, used to have girls come over to his house. Uh, He was a big Coke dealer. Wouldn't sell Coke. He would just take these huge dumps and then have girls lick his ass clean. Uh, but that guy sounds like a real hoot. <laughs> so we'll leave on that. Uh, thank you, Eddie Nash, for providing Van Halen, the club, to play their music, uh, Quiet Riot, and, and uh, London, Nikki Six's old band. But Stevie's got some things to do. We got to cut this right now. Come back for more, Stevie. Thank you to Stevie for providing the music for every episode of Inappropriate Earl. Stephen Piercy for providing the mic knuckles, which I would suggest you get. And we will see you guys real soon. Inappropriate Earl, like an Asian airliner, out. Out.